52 sketches. <laughs> Welcome to 52 Sketches, a podcast about creativity and creative practices. Here's your host, Rob Head. Welcome to the 52 Sketches podcast. I am your host, Rob Head. We are here to talk about creativity and living a creative life, practices, habits, strategies for making wonderful things. Today, we're going to speak with Claudia Alec. Claudia Alec is a cultural producer, performer, and inclusion expert named by American Theatre Magazine as one of 25 theatre artists who will shape American theatre in the next 25 years. Alec has served as the founding artistic director of Smoking Word Productions, is a New York neo-futurism alum, published playwright, recipient of New York City Fresh Fruit Directing Award, TEDx Fargo speaker, featured on HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam, and former community producer at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. At OSF for 10 years, she produced events such as the Every 28 Hours Plays, The Green Show, The Daedalus Project, OSF Open Mics, as well as producing, directing audio plays with OSF, such as the Grammy-nominated Hamlet. Her personal projects include her podcast, Hold On, Wait For It, vlog This Week in Cultural Appropriation, street poetry, and one-person show fill-in-the-blank exploring disability and the medical industry. Claudia Alex serves as founding executive producer of the transmedia social justice company Calling Up, whose projects include The Justice Quilt, We Charge Genocide TV, co-artistic direction of the Fury Factory Festival, and consulting and advising funders and companies around the country. So welcome, Claudia. Hello. <laughs> it's quite the uh, it's quite the bio you have, and we'll touch on probably just a tiny fraction of the things that you've done and are involved in. Um, really excited to have you on the show. We met while you were working at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you have this uh, this impressive uh, pedigree and and resume of things that you you have done and are doing, but I want to start by backing up and saying, okay. You know, if you're the hero in your in your graphic novel, you know how do we write your backstory? What is what is your creative up? What is your creative upbringing? You know, did you grow up? Uh, you know, singing, dancing, cooking, drawing, acting. What mediums were you involved in? Oh gosh, um, as a young one. Well, my father is a writer. He's a poet, and my mm. mother she grew up. Um, being a sort of multi-talented woman who she grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, worked in the civil rights movement, uh, mm. did some acting, and uh, her family was very, very light-skinned and super upper class. And okay. she was rebellious and decided to marry the darkest-skinned poet she could find. And mm. then she and he ran away and had a bunch of wonderful children, and we have been um, causing justice and poetry to happen all over the country ever since. <laughs> Wow, um, so it really goes back a generation. <laughs> uh, I, wow. I have a family that, um, on my father's side, if you go to a family gathering, there's always music. There's mm. always singing. Of course, mm. we're immigrants. We're black people. So there's always, um, you have nine jobs because you have mm -hmm. to survive. So everyone's mm -hmm. always an artist. Being an artist is the base level of just being a person existing in the world. Mm. Um, I'm very lucky that I was able to craft a lifestyle where I'm able to have that be my core practice. My core practice is art and justice making. 
And that was mm. definitely something I've been working on my entire life to manifest. Mm. Well, this is beautiful. This is exactly why I think I'm so glad to have you on the podcast, because this is sort of the central theme of the podcast is how do we take our interests and turn them into something real that we can sink our teeth into in, in our life's work. And um, so so there it is. You know, you have this this family of of poets and musicians. Um, how did you develop? How did you find your way to, did you study, train? Did you have important men mentors along the way? Well, and I, I want to make sure I'm not giving a false impression because it's not like I grew up in some idyllic arts family um, <laughs> okay. that uh, where art was around. It was a, mm -hmm. it was, it was a life of, um, yes, there were books around all the time and mm -hmm. the expectation of, oh yes, you read poetry and you don't think poetry is a weird thing. Right. Um, but, um, uh, but it was a lot of, it was a lot of hard work. Um, mm -hmm. I think that the thing that aided me the most as a child was not knowing that I wasn't allowed to be in charge of things. So in uh, high school, I was part of a theater troupe at the YWCA or the YMCA. It was a mm -hmm. youth theater troupe, but we, um, created our own plays. So it was ensemble devised work. And of course, it okay. was about social justice themes, because isn't that kind of theater always about the kids being like, I'm going to do a play that's about the environment, and I'm going to do right. a play that's about racism. We were adorable. And we wrote yeah. our plays yeah. that were about our identity and how we were coming into ourselves as people. Well, we aged out of the program, and I, in arrogance and naivete, <laughs> said to my fellow aged out members, well, we were doing all the work. Why don't we just keep doing it? Like we were mm. paying them money to give us permission to write our own plays. Let's just do mm. our own plays. And I convinced the YMCA. <laughs> I now recognize that I was just a very confident, young, little, little cute black person. And they were totally willing to invest in me learning a lesson. And they were like, you want, you want a space? Okay, here's a space. And I, I negotiated a contract, a full $150 we got paid for our first gig. And the lesson wow. I learned was audience development is the key. You can have the space. Uh uh -huh. You can have all the actors, you can do everything right. But if you don't have an audience to enjoy your work, it mm. feels like an empty exercise. So I, uh, I'm hearing that there's a, there's an empty audience in that history. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so. we, we, our first production was, was quite successful and was full of parents. But the second run at the park mm. had an audience of 16. And the lesson mm. learned was you have to invest as much time in making the art. Um, you have to invest as much time in making sure there are going to be people there to experience with you. The entire point mm. of this is not in selfishly creating something special that you think is nice. The point is being in collaborative meaning making with other people in the world. Right. Well, so there's I'll a collaboration. That's, yeah. That's the point of my art practice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, art, it's difficult to find meeting in, in creative expression if there's, if there's no receiver <laughs> right on the end of that. Yeah. Okay. So this is where this is in. Oh, this was in Missoula, Montana. So I'm Missoula. a black woman growing up in Missoula, Montana in the 90s. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it's, it's not racially friendly. It's very, very racist. Um, mm. So there were moments where there were, um, I recall like hate newspapers being left on the front step. So, so mm. I grew up being incredibly aware of the country I live in. 
and being right. very, very aware of the racial dynamics of the United States, because I had the gift of having a family in Memphis, Tennessee, and that history of civil rights, and that mm. history of um, black community and majority black community. And then I also had the uh, family members who were immigrants from the island of Grenada, and being in Florida and that community. Uh, but growing up in Montana, that's where I lived all the time. I could visit right. that other community, but I got to learn what America was growing up in Montana. Mm. You touched um, on a couple of things that I, I want to circle back to. One, one is that there's this precious age, uh, you know, the sort of pubescent years where the idea of fairness and justice and making a better world seems inherent in the experience of that transition of our lives. It's the early teens, you know, where you start feeling like things are messed up and I'm discovering this and I want to make it better. And uh, it sounds like you took that and you were able to fully explore that through, you know, the program at, at the YWCA and somehow you hung on to your audacity. And that's, that's, that's an interesting. I have to give a lot of credit to my mother for, for mm. most of the things that were happening in my childhood at that time, um, because I would have an experience at my school where I would perform excellence and then I'd come home and then let my mother know, well, this is how my, my teachers reflected on my excellence. And then my mother mm. would have to tell me a story about how, well, actually what you said was correct. And that was your teacher feeling insecure and needing to perform that they knew better than you, even though that your teacher was wrong in that moment. And we need to make sure mm. that we're reemphasizing what the actual accurate knowledge is. So that was a very useful skill set. So my mother taught me that when majoritarian or dominant culture is not serving you, you just make something to serve yourself. That's what mm. it is to survive as a black person in America. Mm -hmm. You understand that the thing that was designed to serve everybody is generally not designed to serve you. But if you're smart and you want to survive, you make it serve you. So that's I what my mother did for me. I reject your reality and I substitute my own. <laughs> right. Right. Less, less than I reject your reality, more <laughs> I reject your power constructs, right? Right, so, right. Um, yeah. so, so, you know, the world tells me you can't have a theater company. And if I had listened to the world, I wouldn't have started one. But I started one. I started one without knowing better. And also having a mother who said, oh, you should definitely do that. <laughs> awesome. Oh. That, yeah. So let's, yeah, let's talk about uh, how did you develop as a, so, so you had a theater company and where did you go next? Did you get, mm. uh, did you study somewhere in particular? Uh, yes. Uh, wanted to escape Missoula, Montana um, as mm -hmm. soon as possible. And of course, at that time, the the easiest and fastest way to get out felt like a university path. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. I had planned to go to Howard and interviewed there. And that was, I still think about that interview because it was a big dream. But while mm. I was there, my mother forced me to also interview at a bunch of other colleges in Washington, D.C. And the okay. George Washington University gave me the most gorgeous package. It was very, mm. very impressive. I now recognize that part of their deal was finding mm -hmm. the best candidates. So I was mm -hmm. in the same class as like Kerry Washington and I were the presidential arts scholarship students that mm. year. Mm. Um and, uh, and, and our experience at the George Washington University was my experience in, in most dominant, white dominant institu institutions. We paid right. a lot of money to go there. Uh, well, I didn't pay a lot of money to go there. I had no money. I took out a lot of loans to go there mm -hmm. and had a lot of scholarships. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, it didn't serve us. And so we had to make things to serve ourselves. So we created a project called 
think it was called chitlins and cornbread. No, kosher, <laughs> kosher. It was called kosher and cornbread. Kosher wow. and cornbread was an event that we produced that brought the Jewish community and the black community on campus yeah. together because we recognized some weird white supremacy uh, politics that were happening, that were mm -hmm. interrupting our ability to organize. And I, growing up in Montana, had been organizing because we were all in such a minority position, we mm -hmm. collaborated together. So my Unity Church was also the synagogue. And the oh, head of yeah. my Black Student Union, I was only allowed to start a Black Student Union because one teacher, the Jewish teacher, promised to, 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 to help me to, to put it together and was mm. the person who uh, was my, my sponsor. And the rest mm. of the school leadership resisted it, actually. It was, it was a fight. <laughs> you, you know, um, going back to your parents' generation, there, mm. there's, a, there's a longstanding coalition between the Jewish community and the black community in the social justice work that was done, you know, in the 60s and 70s. Um, so, so it's fascinating that that was the coalition that, that coalesced again in your collegiate experience? Well, I'll, I'll say that that coalition uh, was real for me in high school. What I discovered mm -hmm. at the George Washington University was that that type of uh, community was not, was mm -hmm. not there. Um, and we had right. to actually do an artistic event to talk about the division in our community, to talk right. about uh, um, how these white supremacy culture politics were sort of... Um, infecting and embedding, uh, and, and they, they were making it difficult for us to collaborate artistically, to collaborate in ways to dismantle uh, social injustice. Now, mm. I, of course, I'm, this is 20 years later, so I have so much more uh, vocabulary and things to talk about it. At the time, mm -hmm. it was just, you know, us being naive and trying to do some stuff. Uh, right. Carrie and I also ended up uh, producing uh, the Colored Museum, so we did a lot of projects. Um, right. And I, uh, while I was at the George Washington University, I also accidentally ended up running an arts program for a year. I, um, very poor, so I had to have a, several day jobs while I was in college. Right. And right. always there was a, um, the, the one that was connected to the school. What do you call that? When the school is paying you mm. to pay to work for it, work study. Uh, like an in, yeah, work study or yeah, always had a work internship. study. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the deal. Internships, internships are for the lucky. Internships are for those with wealth privilege. You have to have money mm. to do an internship. I had right. to do jobs. So, yeah. but those yeah. work studies were as close to an internship as I could get. So I would make sure I got a work study in some arts theater practice at the university and mm -hmm. the work study I got, the woman who was running the program, she, um, she was ill and had to drop out at the last minute. So I showed up at school and they informed me that the arts program that ran my entire dorm was just going to go mm -hmm. dormant for a year. And I said, why would you do that? I'll run it. <laughs> and they said, what? And I said, give me two weeks. I said, give me right. two weeks. You know, you, what, are you gonna, what do you have to lose? Give me two weeks. Let me do the programming. Let me set it up. And then, you know, if you don't like it, you can stop it and you can stop paying me and I'll go work in the cafeteria or something. And so right. I ran um, an arts program at the George Washington University for a year, had a full theater. We produced mm. five plays, uh, several uh, magazines, poetry magazines, a whole bunch of stuff. It was a great program. Then I left you know, and I realized, oh. Sidekick. <laughs> well, the lesson, <laughs> five lesson I plays? learned. But I, I lesson, want to circle back. Five, you did five productions and, and several publications in one year? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, here's, this is the lesson wow. I learned. The lesson I learned was mm -hmm. you can do anything if you have access and resources. 
I graduated <laughs> and I left right. being like, oh, I can be an artistic director. I was just the artistic director of a um, multimedia uh, uh, project. I can do this. And then I d quickly discovered, oh, wait, no one will let you be in charge of anything. It doesn't matter mm. that you have two companies under your belt already that you've dealt right. with budgets of this size. None of that right. matters. You're a young black woman in that body and no one will mm. let you be in charge of anything unless you build it yourself. So I started, wow. um, so I've started many a theater company in my lifetime. Uh, right. Which explains I, I, your, your bio. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I left DC. I went to New York city, uh, started mm. doing a lot of poetry slams. Um, at the, at that time I tried to always, if I had a day job, it was a day job that was working in a, in a place where I felt like the outcomes were good outcomes for the world. So generally all of my day jobs have been around access for disabled communities or access mm. for communities of color. Uh, mm. So I was working for the foundation for the uh, American foundation for the blind, doing a lot right. of uh, recording of their of uh, their audio books. Um, and I started a, th a hip hop theater company, smoke and word productions in New York city. That was dope. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And um, eventually um, ended up uh, shutting that all down and getting this gig at uh, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Mostly took that because I wanted to see, are all of these experiments in justice making and cultural producing and finding ways to escape the financial and economic traps that seem to want to cut us out of even being able to be a part of the industry. I wanted to see if that worked outside of the urban area that I was in mm. New York. I wanted to see if I was working with reality and I felt like right. I needed to test it in a predominantly white community. And I was like, let me right. go back to where I grew up and small, Ashland, small Oregon, town. Yeah. much like Missoula, yeah. Montana, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even smaller. Um, yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, um, this this drive you have is is obvious uh i think on every level from your your resume to just the the um the way that you're able to um describe your your experience i i want to ask you know how do you stay at that level of of intensity how do you stay at that level of um assertion of your you know just indomitable will what do you have daily practices that help you stay centered that help you keep going that help you keep your momentum how do you care for your instrument you know your your mm. body yourself your your craft well i will name practices i have uh, i'm mm -hmm. not going to name them as daily because i don't think well some of them are <laughs> daily but okay fair enough um so I was raised a Nichiren Shoshu Buddhist. And while I let go of a lot of Nichiren Shoshu, um, I, I do still have a, a Buddhist practice. So I do a lot mm -hmm. of meditation. And I think okay. that meditation is a very important um, uh, practice to have, mm -hmm. um, being able to listen to your body and, and calm your body. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I rise in the morning and I always rise and do stretches and I always make sure that I have some kind of connection with nature. Uh, I have a little garden, so there's always a little bit of weeding hmm. or something that takes place. Uh, when I'm not at home and well, now I'm home all the time because of this COVID-19 crisis. But before right. when I was traveling two to three weeks out of the month, um, I would still maintain that practice. These were practices I put into my life to help me feel consistent, regardless of the location I was at. So I rise, right. I stretch. And you do a lot I, of traveling. Yeah. I, I oh, did, you did. Yes. Yeah. yeah a a yeah. huge amount of traveling because I was traveling the country looking at um, the intersection of cultural producing and justice making and trying mm -hmm. to determine why are some efforts 
failing over and over and over again? What are the techniques or the strategies that are just not a good use of time? Because um, when I left the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, mm -hmm. I felt like I um, had a decision to make about, oh, what's, what's the next step going to be? Right. And I decided to do an incredibly audacious thing where I, I asked myself, do you want to run an organization? And I was like, no, I don't want to help an organization. Mm. And I was like, okay. And then I said, well, you, do you just want to spent help 10 years in a large theater organization. Yeah. Yes. And then I said, do you want to help a town? And I was like, no, I don't want to just help a town. And I was like, mm. okay, Claudia, do you want to help a state? And I was like, no, I don't want to just help a state. And I was like, oh, well then Claudia, do you want to help the entire country? Is that the deal? And I was like, well, that, that seems to be what I want to do. And I was like, excellent. Then, then the question was, do you want to work for the NEA? Because they've got this job that they're offering. And, uh, and then I was like, no, I do not. I do not want to work for the federal government. Mm. I want to make something different. Can I serve right. all the people in this country without mm -hmm. working in the preformed, um, institutionalized pathways that have been designed? Can I design mm. new pathways? Right. So that's the work I'm engaged in. And still um, eat and have a place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so part of this practice is I learn something new every single day. So every day, almost every single day, I am either part of a think tank so like right mm -hmm. now, I, um, I, left, I left the Orchard Liveness Labs early to join you mm -hmm. for this podcast. Um, <laughs> okay, thank you for but that. But I, I, my, my intern is in there right now. And, and afterwards, we're going we're gonna to sit down and be like, <laughs> what did you learn? Uh, but yeah, I, if I'm not actually in one of my think tanks, sharing ideas, getting ideas, sharing challenges, I will be listening to a podcast or um, um, watching um, a video. Excellent. Um, do you have other projects you're working on? It sounds like you're you're just moving at a breakneck pace. <laughs> um, Indeed. Uh, yeah, well, you're, so, you're, you're catching me in like one of the most fundamentally uh, active times of my career, which is saying a lot, honestly. <laughs> that is saying a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, because I traveled to Ferguson and, and ended up, you know, producing the Every 28 Hours plays with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of artists all over the country. Right. Uh, I want to hear about that. Uh, can you talk oh, a little bit about that particular project and how it went and, and what the learnings oh, were? Well, gosh. Well, um, I would summarize say two that, years of your life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what I love about that project is it's still going. Right. So mm -hmm. I um, I'm on Instagram posting about the We Charge Genocide TV project. And I see that somebody's about to do the every 28 hours plays because mm. I put them I, I wrote to all of the playwrights. When George Floyd was shot, I, I wrote all the playwrights and I asked them, are you okay with me just putting these on the website and saying anybody wants to download these plays, download them, go produce them right this minute. All the playwrights yeah. said yes um, mm. in an incredibly amazing act of generosity. Um, and so that meant that I let go of my knowledge of when the plays are being produced. So I found out because there was a tag. I, I, I was a tag on, on Instagram, saw there was a production happening. So a digital production just took place like a week ago. Um, mm. Those plays were written by about 90 different playwrights, over 90 playwrights. Um, mm. They were developed with, um, in a stone soup model. So I had no money. And I just knew that there was mm. a problem. We had to solve it. And I asked theater companies, hey, could you give a, a theater person, any theater person, it could be an actor, it could be an admin person, it could be a director, anybody to come to Ferguson with us? Because we recognize we need to have, we need to develop these in the community for this to be right. Um, not extractive, not mm -hmm. exploitative. There needs to be something um, that's based in, in the protest community and what's really happening. Um, so we all traveled there. 
Um, and, uh, and the, and the, and the plays, the plays are still being produced. So that's, that's deeply mm. exciting. I, let me, let me actually, uh, you'd asked me to tell you about what my latest project was. And I yes, feel like I, I was that. about to, and then I pivoted and gave you three and a half minutes on the every 28 hours plays, which was lovely. Yeah. So this yeah, is, please go ahead. What are you working on and what's inspiring you, you know, this during the, during the pandemic, you know, how, how are you working now? When the pandemic hit, one of the first things I ended up doing was I started producing large-scale conversations. So I collaborated with the freelancers, with uh, HowlRound, and spoke to the country in that way. I collaborated mm -hmm. uh, with um, disabled organizations and unsettling dramaturgy and spoke that way. Um, I, I just did a disabled justice and anti-police violence uh, digital workshop. I've been doing a weekly producing an age of pandemic peer exchange session, hour and a half for free every single week, every Monday. So mm. that piece of my practice has expanded in terms mm. of outward facing public speaking, connecting to folks, developing new practices, developing new work. Mm. I, um, have been working with the network of ensemble theaters. We took the connector app which was an app that was created specifically to help people to tour physically. And we um, did some, some hard pivots and uh, created ways for people to tour digitally and virtually. So that connector app was um, some, some passion work that's, that's been taking place over the last few months. But the biggest project I'm involved in right now is building Calling Up Justice Studios, which is a quarantined mm -hmm. studio. It's, Mm -hmm. fully podcast capable, fully film video capable, and has a guest room. Because I will have to live in the conditions of quarantine to be a healthy living artist on this planet mm -hmm. until there's a vaccine, I thought that I'm, I feel confident there are other artists who are going to need that as well. And mm -hmm. so I will be launching the Calling of Justice residencies in about three months. Uh, to um, open up this opportunity to other artists so they can have the ability to produce their work everywhere like I mm -hmm. have been. Um, right. It's real weird that it's a horrible, horrible time right now, mm -hmm. but I'm super grateful to be so connected um, right. and my voice is being heard in more spaces than it ever has been. So mm. Every shift, you know, in every you know, historical shift has these new doors that open. It's um, just the nature of, of uh, change, I guess. Um, is, so are you talking about bringing people for, you know, a period of time, like a few days or weeks or months or how, how what does a res residency look like? I'm completely non-prescriptive in my design modalities. So I've mm -hmm. designed it so people can stay for up to three weeks. Um, mm -hmm. And if it's only a couple of days, that's fine. Excellent. The idea is that it's a safe space where you have access to a lot of equipment. Right. Well, you're, you're, you're physically distant, say, uh, safe, but you've got all the access to create whatever you need to create in that space. Yes. And of course, there are, um, there will, there, there, there's going to have to be a lot of flow in between people coming in and out of the space because we're going to be mm -hmm. doing some, some hardcore quarantine protocols. And the outcomes of the work that's being produced here will be justice-based outcomes for disabled community, for, um, for my BIPOC community, uh, mm -hmm. for my LGBTQ plus community. We're going to be producing some not only artistic work, 
but in real life performance of ju- performances of justice. That's the goal. Mm. So I want to connect this. Uh, this uh, obviously, it's so integrated; it's impossible to tease apart in your case. But this idea of uh, we have this creative impulse in our lives, um, and we can use it to um, try to evoke some sort of change in the society that we live in. We can we can use it to serve people. You're creating a space where it's serving creative people who are serving the community sort of a meta service. (laughs) Is that how you look at it? My philosophy is that my fate is tied to yours. So if Mm -hmm. I design to serve myself and you, then I'm serving us Mm -hmm. all. So that's that my, Mm -hmm. my, 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 my goal is to design things that are serving as many people as possible. Mm. It really resonates that what you said earlier about uh, uh, reflecting on what's effective and what's not. And so is this uh, the outcome of of those meditations or or is it a new experiment or how does that connect in? Well, you know, I feel like all of the design choices I was making in the last Mm -hmm. two years were prepping me for this moment. So Mm -hmm. I had been creating the scaffolding for a digital practice and uh, Um, I had been creating um, all of the practices that you need to be able to create um, if you are in um, a a quarantined conditions. Mm -hmm. So my first instinct was to share that knowledge. Right. And then I just kept doing it. And you kept doing it. So uh, fantastic. I'm so excited to see how that that plays out and uh, what's able to be created in there. And and how would somebody um, help? contribute towards that that goal oh gosh um that's a lovely question how could someone (laughs) i figured i I, i'll be honest i'm not sure yet but you know what they could do they could just gonna go to my this is how slow i am i'm like how can someone i i I just had this conversation with my staff i'm Mm anti-capitalist and my designs are all anti-capitalist designs i believe if you design with creating monetary profit uh centered Mm -hmm. You will end mm-hmm. up with designs that make that happen first and everything happens second, um, mm-hmm. which means you get less potent actual justice outcomes. Mm. However, it, yeah. all of the work that we need to do is so valuable and sign interpreters cost money. So mm-hmm. you can donate to support Calling Up Justice Studios at paypal.me slash calling up. Beautiful. Thanks for for sharing that. Um, I I appreciate the reframing of, of how you you create these these projects and these organizations. Uh, one of the things that one of my learnings in an earlier business was that um, profitability is um, is this sort of chimeric uh, uh, thing if you're chasing it, um, but nothing is sustainable unless it's paying its own expenses. And so uh, the way that uh, I like to look at it is that profitability is just one of the uh, subtics of sustainability and nothing, you know, (laughs) nothing can be long-term effective unless it's uh, able to support itself. And so that's the way I try to look at it. Um, And I don't know if that resonates with, uh, with your experience. Yes, definitely. No, sustainability design is, um, Mm -hmm is a, is a wonderful way to frame that. Mm. 
Excellent. Well, Claudia, it is such a delight to to talk to you on the podcast, and I'm so glad that you were able to take uh, take the time to speak with us. And do you have any uh, parting thoughts you want to share to other creatives who are trying to find their way in the world? Teach someone, give something away for free. Mm. Excellent. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your uh, your contributions and everything that you're doing uh, in your work and uh, as a human being. Thank you so much. Thank you. The 52 Sketches podcast is a product of 52 Sketches, makers of earlywords.io, daily, private, stream of consciousness writing to clear your mind and unlock your creativity.